SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV Radio broadcasts from. The Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to. From the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from fresh water to salt water. Yaman, welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program this Friday, the 3rd of November, we'll be joined by Thelma Parker, inaugural chair of the board of Area Flexible Schools, as Area, the largest network of alternative schooling in Australia, has recently created a new leadership role to better respond to the needs of First Nations students. As you'll hear, the creation of the new role coincides with the failed Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum. The move thus demonstrates how schools or the education system should or could adjust their approach to Indigenous education. Also on NITV Radio today, I caught up with CDU's Associate Professor, Auntie Elaine Maipilama, who has dedicated more than 20 years of her career working with CDU and has been instrumental in improving lives of women and babies in maternity wards and remote communities across the Northern Territory. Auntie Elaine has now been nominated for the Northern Territory Australian Senior Citizen of the Year 2024 Award. Also on NITV Radio Today, we explore a new development in closing the gap fighting cancer. By far Australia's biggest killer, the federal government has just launched its first ever national strategy a 10-year program that seeks to improve outcomes, especially for First Nations people. All these stories and more coming to you on NITV Radio after our weekly news wrap. Bertrand Tungandami, I am Bertrand Tungandami. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. They've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. In this bulletin, a two-day global summit on AI safety wraps up. This year's Sydney Peace Prize winner shares her passion with school children. And in sport, the Matildas are a step closer to their goal of booking a spot in the Paris 2024 Olympic Games. Australia is among 28 nations, including China, who have signed a document pledging more cooperation on the research and use of artificial intelligence to ensure it develops in a way that is human-centric, trustworthy and responsible. Called the Bleacher Declaration, the document was signed at a two-day summit hosted by the United Kingdom at Bleachley Park, home of Britain's World War II codebreakers. 
Australia's Minister for Industry and Science, Ed Husich, said signing the pledge shows Australia's commitment to work with the international community to ensure artificial intelligence is developed with the right guardrails in place. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says in many ways the statement is a world first and it is the first step of what he hopes will be a robust process with future summits to be hosted by South Korea and France. Until now, the only people testing the safety of new AI models have been the very companies developing it. That must change. So building on the G7 Hiroshima process and the global partnership on AI, like-minded governments and AI companies have today reached a landmark agreement. We will work together on testing the safety of new AI models before they are released. Also at the summit was tech billionaire Elon Musk, who co-founded the ChatGPT developer OpenAI. During a 40-minute conversation with Mr. Sunak, he said he sees a time when artificial intelligence will render all jobs obsolete, and he called AI the most disruptive force in history. Elon Musk says efforts must be directed to guiding the use of AI in, way, in a way that is beneficial to humanity. We start with insight. I think there's a lot of concern among people in the uh, AI field that, there will, that, that the government will sort of jump the gun on um, rules before knowing what to do. Um, and I think, um, I think that's unlikely to happen. I think what, what we're really aiming for here is to establish a framework for insight so that there's at least a third-party referee, an independent referee, that can observe what leading AI companies are doing and at least uh, sound the alarm if they, if they have concerns. Australians who have evacuated Gaza say they're grateful to have left but fear for family members who remain. About 20 Australians were among the first group of 400 foreign passport holders who exited Gaza into Egypt using the Rafah border crossing. Qatar brokered a deal between Egypt, Hamas and Israel to allow foreign national civilians to leave Gaza after being trapped there for three weeks during the conflict. Mona says her concern is for family members who remain in Gaza. But I'm, I'm very sad as well at the same, same time because I'm leaving my family behind um, with no food, no water, in a very, very scary situation. And they're not even in their houses. They, they move. They, they move from house to another like. I can't describe the situation there. It's just like very, very sad. Russia has accused Ukraine of risking a nuclear disaster after Ukrainian drones were shot down near the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The power station is Europe's largest atomic power plant and has been under Russian control since early March 2022. The Russian operator of the plant says four of the reactors are shut down, while two of the reactors are in so-called hot shutdown mode. In recent weeks, Ukrainian officials have condemned deadly Russian missile attacks in the city of Zaporizhia. The International Atomic Energy Agency has repeatedly said the world is fortunate that no nuclear accident has yet happened at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, considering nuclear safety is extremely fragile. Meanwhile, the United States has imposed sweeping new measures against Russia over the war, targeting Russia's future energy capabilities and sanctions evasion. 
Victoria plays half-child 49-year-old Erin Patterson with three counts of murder and five counts of attempted murder over an alleged mushroom poisoning in July. Miss Patterson was arrested at her home in South Gippsland in in Victoria's southeast as part of an investigation into the suspected poisoning with police searching the property. She has now been charged with murdering couple Gail and Don Patterson and her sister Heather Wilkinson after serving them a beef wellington pie for lunch in her home. Heather's husband Ian Wilkinson is still recovering after spending almost two months in hospital receiving treatment after the lunch. Detective Inspector Dean Thomas from the Homicide Squad has reminded people to take care when discussing the tragic incident. I think it's particularly important that we keep in mind that at the heart of this, three people have lost their lives. These are three people who, by all accounts, were much beloved in their communities and are greatly missed by their loved ones. A new report on the health of refugees in Australia shows that communities are less likely to self-report cancer and mental health conditions. The new report from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare finds that health conditions and the use of health services appear to differ for the vulnerable communities in comparison to the rest of the Australian population. Using census data, they found refugees and humanitarian entrants were 60% less likely to report asthma and cancer when compared to the rest of the Australian population, as well as 50% less likely to report chronic lung conditions and mental health issues. The Institute's Vanessa Souza says there may be cultural considerations for the underreporting, particularly relating to mental health. We do know that there might be some self-report limitations when it comes to mental health conditions. So we do know that there might be a, le- a reluctance or a stigma attached with talking about mental health conditions, and that maybe accessing services might be difficult. So we do hope that it shines a light in some ways and some of the areas that could be improved on. In contrast, the communities were more likely to self-report diabetes, kidney disease, stroke and dementia. Iranian actress and activist Nazanin Boniadi has been awarded Australia's most prestigious peace prize, the Sydney Peace Prize, for her commitment to advancing women's rights in Iran. Ms. Boniadi is known for her appearances on screen, including the comedy TV series How I Met Your Mother and the action thriller film Hotel Mumbai. She has been encouraging the younger generation to raise their voices about global human rights issues and work towards a more peaceful and just world. Ms. Boniadi also addressed Cabramara High School in Sydney yesterday, which is one of the most diverse schools in Australia, with many students from families that have fled conflict in their homelands. She told SBS News she was inspired by the passion of the school children. Uh, the, the famous quote, darkness doesn't drive out darkness, only light can do that. And uh, hate doesn't drive out hate, only light, uh, love can do that. And these, these children, essentially, these young people, this generation personifies that and I'm just so honoured to be in their presence. They not only are the future, they are today's leaders. The Beatles have released what they are calling their final song. Named Now and Then, it's been 40 years in the making with the first bars written by John Lennon in 1978. The track features the late John Lennon's voice which has been isolated from the original cassette using artificial intelligence technology. Patrick Hutchins is the head of artificial intelligence at generative music platform AIME.
He says the song is an example of the exciting ways people are making use of existing AI technology. I think it's quite exciting. I think it's very interesting. The, the way that they've, they've done it is respectful and interesting. This has been happening for a while. Um, especially the, the kind of ways that they've been using AI, uh, which is for restoration of recordings. Uh, this has been built into music software for, for a number of years now. I think the big thing is that this isn't kind of a big revolutionary step. It's, it's really an evolution of stuff that's been going on for the Beatles and, and music in general. And in football, goals by Mary Fowler, Sam Carr and Tameka Yalop have resulted in a 3-0 win for the Matildas over Taiwan in front of 19,000 fans in Perth. To qualify for the 2024 Paris Olympic Games, Australia must now beat world number 50 Uzbekistan in a two-legged playoff in February. Uzbekistan will host the first game on February 24 with Australia to host Game 2 at a yet-to-be-decided venue on February 28. The performance of Fowler continues to impress with the 20-year-old scoring her second goal across the three qualifiers and also setting up numerous others for her teammates. She says it is incredible to see the team excel across the three games. And I think that first camp after a big tournament can go, you know, either way. Um, Either everyone's really tired and performances kind of drop off a bit um, or, you know, you're able to build off that momentum. And I think you can see in in this camp in three games you're able to build off that and everyone was just as motivated as we were in that first game of the World Cup. So it's been a really good camp, I think, for everyone. Um, And it's great to get three good results. And that is NITV Radio's Weekly News Wrap. NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. I am Bertrand Tungandame and you're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from now on the Cooling Nation this Friday afternoon. Coming up next, well, I caught up with the CDU's Associate Professor Auntie Ellen Mapilama, who has dedicated more than 20 years of her career working with Charles Darwin University. Through her teachings and research, Auntie Elaine has been instrumental in improving lives of women and babies in maternity wards and remote communities across the Northern Territory. And now she's been nominated for the Northern Territory Australian Senior Citizen of the Year 2024 Award. More come in the program. Also coming up in, uh, on NITV Radio today, a new development in Closing the Gap, Fighting Cancer by far Australia's biggest killer. The federal government has now just launched uh, its uh, first ever national strategy, a 10-year program that seeks to improve outcomes, especially for First Nations people. But first, a story about the creation of a new leadership role to better respond to the needs of First Nations students. Flexible Schools, the largest network of alternative schools in Australia, has just created a new role, a director of First Nations Education, to respond to the significant and urgent need to better support, encourage, and respond to Indigenous students. Something that is only more important since the failed Indigenous Voice referendum. And to discuss the new role, I'm joined by Thelma Parker, chair of the board of Area of Flexible Schools. Thelma Parker, 
First of all, thanks for joining us on NITV Radio. And can you tell us more about uh, this newly created role? Thank you very much for inviting me on the, the show today. Um, my name is uh, Thelma Parker and I'm the chairperson for the Edmund Rice Educational Australia Flexible Schools Limited. It has been newly formed for this year. However, in saying that I've been a part of the Edmund Rice Educational Australia Flexi Schools, um, um, which is an alternative school um, for 20-odd years. Um, so my role, I've been part of a, what they call a head of school. Then I went into a national education officer uh, to support 55 schools right across Australia. So I've been asked now to, as the inaugural um, chairperson, to come on to assist um, in the development of uh, 26 schools right across Australia. So my job was to uh, to bring on a board that was going to be um, supportive for alternative schooling. And like you said, that we are the largest alternative schooling program across Australia. First Nations make up 30% of those young people right across. Uh, we do have um, schools that are in uh, Northern Territory, Alice Springs, Man Isa and Geraldton. So, you know, some really large areas of First Nations young people in rural and remote communities, not only within urbanised communities. So how important is the new role, Director of First Nations Education, not only for your network, but but for the students as well? So for us, um, this role as a Director of First Nations Education is to provide strategic support and oversight, um, you know, through a meaningful uh, connections with First Nations people, but not only that, is allowing community to actually interact at that IN level. For us as First Nations people, we need to have those strategic conversations with um, organisations such as ours in alternative schooling arrangements for our young people at the moment is a, is a high need and the kids that we deal with there, the kids that are at the pointy end of the stick, right, so that they're able to have some type of formal education. And we need to make it real for them. And so in terms of our strategic planning, we need to make sure that we're connected to those communities. So I guess for a director of First Nations education and for them to be at a national level, we need to hear those voices so that people are making those decisions like your principals, like your regional directors, but also a CEO that is going to provide the funding elements so that we have the right educational programs for our young people, but also for our communities, right? And how significant do you see this role as a First Nations expert in education? I know that in my own experience, when I was the the, the head of campus for Men Eyes, a flexible learning school, we had 90 enrolments of our young people and we had 98% of, of, of First Nations peoples. 
It was really crucial not only for me as a First Nations person, as a leader of a school, but to have teachers that were in front of our young people. Not only teachers, but to have education support officers or what we call youth officers that can understand our young people. And language is one of our biggest barriers in education and we need to make sure that we have a process, that we have the understanding that not only language, that we can actually now have our young people to code switch and to co-create a new world for us. Knowing full fact that we come out of the referendum that we have a new Australia and it revealed who we are as Australians and that's not healthy for our First Nations communities and we need to really pick up on those points and to really provide quality high expectations, educational outcomes for our kids that are at that point in. We're not going to get any better in a sense of having that self-empowerment for our young people if we don't have the right teachers, if we don't have the right resources to fulfil our young people's needs. And the only way we're going to do that is to have a voice at the table, and that will be through the Director of First Nations. Now, this new role of Director of First Nations Education at Area Flexible Schools has uh, been announced uh, just a few days after the failed uh, referendum on Indigenous Voice to Parliament. You kind of uh, touched on the significance of uh, creating this role in this context, but can you tell us a little bit more about uh, why it's really crucial to implement um, such a role after a failed referendum on Indigenous Voice to Parliament? I see the referendum certainly has given us a space, and especially within those rural and remote communities, of where a voice is required. For us, having the truth-telling processes, which is so needed in all educational institutions right across Australia, and to have a director to provide that structure in their own portfolio um, in terms of educational uh, outcomes for all students, which is so badly needed, um, that will certainly give a significant uh, process for us in terms of healing and reconciliation, uh, which is certainly is a must um, for all Australians to undertake what is the truth-telling of First Nations histories here in Australia. Now the new role, Director of First Nations Education within the Area Flexible Schools Network has been created. Now what are the expectations or the qualities uh, do you expect from uh, applicants? We're seeking for really good quality First Nations uh, education leaders that are out there. We have a really good support structure in place. Um, obviously that is going to be culturally safe for a First Nations director to do the role effectively and efficiently throughout our remote communities and throughout all of our schools across Australia. So we're looking for someone who has that experience and that skill set of having um, educational experience, both kids and 
that are able to articulate it in a way that it's going to be really meaningful not only for our young people but also their families and their communities. And uh, finally, where can uh, applicants get information about this new role? If they are wanting to, to look at this position, it's actually on SEEK um, or otherwise by emailing us through careers at E-R-E-A-F-S-N dot edu dot au. If not, you can call um, uh, Matt Hawkins, who is the CEO of our company. So applications will close on Monday the 6th of November. Yeah. yeah. And can I also just add that this contract is a five-plus-five-year uh, and it's full-time. While our national office is based in Brisbane on Turbal and Yagura countries, EREA Flexible Skills Limited, we support applications who wish to stay connected to their countries. Thelma Parker, Chair of the Board, Area Flexible Schools, Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio about the newly created Director of First Nations Education in your network. All right, no worries. Thank you very much. It's now time for another break, but uh, stay with us because when we come back, we have a conversation with uh, Associate Professor Auntie Hélène Maipilama of Charles Darwin University whose teachings and research have made a tremendous improvement for mothers and babies across the Northern Territory. NITV Radio. Share our stories on Facebook. Professor Maipilama has dedicated more than 20 years of her career working with CDU and has been instrumental in improving lives of women and babies in remote communities. Her work has earned her respect and recognition within the academic world and the, the community. Professor Maipilama is joining us on NITV Radio as she's been nominated Northern Territory Senior Australian Person of the Year 2024 Award. Professor Maipilama, welcome to NITV Radio. Thank you. Your work uh, has earned you a lot of uh, respect and recognition uh, within the community and the academic world. And now you've been nominated for the highest accolade in the Northern Territory. What does this nomination mean to you? I was very interested to be nominated for the Australian of the Year. I have been working in education for 21 years. The next job was my research. That research made me more uplifted and more interested in that because when I did my research, it was good thing for my community and for my people to lead them through that pathway. Now, within your work in education and research, you mainly recognized for your research and work on uh, bathing on country. Tell us more about this uh, research. The important part of that research and my work was I make them understand and to find out how we can live and work and walk together through that pathway. As I'm getting old, and I'm now 70, and I would like to see my own people to lead that way. So, you know, it's a very, very wide 
um, work and heavy that we need to understand and go through more deep um, understanding and deep knowledge that will lead my people. So I've worked hard for them to follow that. And it's not only me and my family, but for whole of the Northern Territory or it, whole of the Yolngu people and to see them, how they can get this. You've worked uh, within the community and uh, in education with the Charles Darwin University, helping uh, establish uh, culturally safe uh, practices. Tell us your journey working with Charles Darwin University, uh, work that has got a very, very significant impact, uh, not only on the education sector, but on your community as well. My commitment is for Charles Darwin University. Um, we collaborated and we collaborate the work that we do and to show how I feel about university and I would like to see more Indigenous people of Australia to come to university and study more in research or whatever uh, university have in different um, different areas that and to see young people, my own young people, to lead that and. You know, have that education like other non-Indigenous people have, because I know Indigenous people in our stage we can't get to higher education, and to I have to express that because I feel that university is here and there to lead my people. So I want to know want to know them, like let them know and to see how how university works and how university makes change, you know, to lead my people, indigenous people, through what non indigenous have. So you'd like to build capacity in the education sector and see young Indigenous kids uh, perform and enroll in uh, education all the way up to university studies? It is very important that non-Indigenous and Indigenous people will work together and to walk together to have good education and good understanding each other how we work together and this is my hope. I would like to see both world working together in a good environment and strong, be strong on that so we can lead our own people in future. You're very strong in uh, cultural practices, but one of uh, the greatest uh, recognition and uh, achievements uh, that's uh, widely spoken about uh, in academia and uh, in the community is uh, bathing on country. Can you tell us more about uh, your work uh, promoting bathing on country? What we've done from the beginning was a small one, small, and it grown big. I am concentrating on that 
because I want people to learn more of your knowledge because we have been forgotten for thousands of years. Uh, birthing on country is bringing back the knowledge, a young knowledge, so we can use that. And we want to collaborate that and to adapt that into our system. Still want to work with um, non-Indigenous people because they've got more high level of uh, leading us through to recognize our certificate or our work that we do. So we need to up strengthening that pathway. So people are now starting working Jakamir and we call that Jakamir. People are doing that now to be able to care for mum with pregnancy. That is a main, main important part of exchanging the knowledge and exchanging the language, that um, medical term language that um, doctors and nurses use it, use it in that system. So we need to be able to uplift our own people to, you know, recognize that. And so we are acknowledging both university and our work to be able to continue that. I saw a lot of uh, the work that you've done, a lot of research, a lot of papers that published about uh, the tremendous work that you do. But one of the most uh, striking one uh, is one about how to be to be born upon a pandanus mat. Can you tell us about um, this particular story about a baby being born upon a pandanus mat? We, um, like we, you know, people, we do our mat and be upon pandanus mat, and that's upstrengthening that you woman in pregnancy should have that together with Balanda. Um, non-indigenous people to work alongside and so have birth there. This is not alone, but only indigenous people have, but to have both. I've done many research and many authors. I've done many teaching and also giving your education, your knowledge, how to on country. Professor Maipilama, before I let you go, anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Also, I would like to share to the people and to the government or whoever, I would like to see people working on this ground to uplift, to make the gap close, you know, what he, what is missing and what is not been done, you know, we would like to see people doing that together. And that means we're closing the gap with the non-Indigenous people or Indigenous people or the government works together, then we'll see. That will show us that we are doing the, closing the gap. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see, you know, if we do that. 
Professor Maipilama, once again, congratulations for your nomination as Anti-Australian Senior Citizen of the Year 2024 Award. And thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. NITV Radio. Share our stories on Facebook. Welcome back. Now, cancer is Australia's biggest killer taking the lives of 135 people every day. And to combat this, the federal government has launched its first ever national strategy in a bid to address the gaps in care. Sam Dover reports. Professor Jacinta Elston considers herself fortunate. She was 33 when she found a lump in her breast. My youngest child was uh, not yet one, so it was a pretty uh, different and devastating experience really in regional North Queensland. I'm blessed to still be here 20 years later, um, particularly given that you know, nearly 45% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are diagnosed do, um, do not make it past their cancer. She now serves as the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Cancer Control Chair for Cancer Australia. Drawing from her experiences, she's helped Cancer Australia develop the country's first national cancer plan. The plan covers all cancer types with a key focus on First Nations people. Cancer is like a dark cloud hanging over our mob. Every day, five of us are diagnosed with the disease. We're more likely to be diagnosed with cancer than non-Indigenous Australians. But the good news is we have a plan to help turn this around. The Australian Cancer Plan is a new step in the right direction for our mob's fight against cancer. Launched in Melbourne, the 10-year strategy seeks to improve outcomes. Along with achieving equity for First Nations people, the plan aims to maximise cancer prevention and early detection, ensure better consumer experiences and transform the delivery of care. CEO of Cancer Australia, Professor Dorothy Keefe, says there needs to be streamlined access to treatment. We need to focus on uh, making sure that, it, that we do the things we already know how to do properly um, and that we don't put roadblocks in the way of smooth care. The issue of access to adequate cancer treatment remains especially difficult for those living in rural and remote areas. Associate Professor Craig Underhill serves as Cancer Services Director at the Albury-Wodonga Regional Cancer Centre. He says outcomes for cancer patients are markedly worse in the regions. Our cancer outcomes in metropolitan Australia are amongst the best in the world, but once you go into remote uh, Australia, regional Australia, in general the outcomes are about 10% worse. He says there could be a number of reasons for this disparity, but he often finds patients are hesitant to pursue treatment options that would require them heading to major cities for care. We don't know why it is. Is it just the geography? Is it lack of access to services? Or is there a socioeconomic overlay as well? Um, But I know as someone who works in regional Australia, um, anecdotally I see all the time Uh, People make decisions not to uh, access care if the care has to a particular specialty uh, treatment that is only available in metropolitan Australia. With more than 164,000 Australians estimated to be diagnosed this year, the government says this strategy is not only about improving survival rates. 
Health Minister Mark Butler says they want to foster a better healthcare system that is easy to navigate. This plan is directed at making sure that not only the outcomes, the survival rates, are as good as we possibly can get given the available technology and treatments nowadays, but also that the experience, the ability to navigate a complex healthcare system is as good as it possibly can be. Sam Dover, SBS News. SBS is updating its radio schedule. From October 5, there will be more times to listen. With repeated programming on Wednesday, Friday and Saturday at 6pm on SBS 1. To find out more, visit sbs.com.au slash audio. And uh, that's all from NITV Radio this uh, Friday afternoon. I am Bertrand Tungandami thanking you for your company today. Your program will be back next week on Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm also wishing you a very beautiful and safe weekend.